Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am Dan Lust, alongside Dan Wallach. We are Conduct Detrimental. Dan, get close to the Super Bowl over here. Yeah, very close. And, uh, you know, just the, the, the number of NFL related stories that have just like, you know, surfaced on the radar over the last you know week, week and a half. Astounding. It's just like perfect timing to give us almost, a, you know, a Super Bowl special version of Conduct Detrimental. I'm going to yell at you for a second. You didn't know I was going to do this. Then ever since we started this podcast in June of 2020, you're like, we're going to go on Radio Row. I know a guy that knows a guy. And guess what, Dan? I'm going to tell you something. Obviously, we're going to be on Radio Row at some point. You have the hookup, you know, but the problem is, Dan, in an alternative world, do you imagine how well we would have done this week if we were on Radio Row, how in high demand you and I would have been for this particular week? Sure, sure, of course. But you have to understand Radio Row isn't what it used to be pre-COVID. You know, it was like a madhouse. I think the numbers are, are restricted and, you know, there, there are fewer radio stations that are being sent uh, and, and just the overall number of media outlets that are participating. It, it's not as essential anymore now that we're in a Zoom environment, but it is, you know, for people like us, it's such an exciting atmosphere and it's a chance to connect with many of the, you know, media personalities that we talk to you know, remotely. But honestly, this is not the year i think i'd want to be in in, in los angeles during the height of a of, of, of a resurgence of the pandemic so we've we've skipped the last two years but 2023 marches on again what pandemic i feel like the nfl has solved the pandemic i haven't seen anybody get ruled out of a game for covid in about a month i they it's funny like magic johnson cured aids right and then the nfl just cured covid it doesn't exist anymore Right. Only one. I think Florida reported this. Oh, no, the NFL's chief medical officer reported that only one. They've only had one hospitalization the Shocking. entire NFL season among 7,000. No, but I'm not, I'm not giving them we don't we're not going to get too in the weeds of covid. But we, we were about a month ago where guys were missing games for covid left and right. The betting odds were freaking out. And all of a sudden, covid has been solved if you're an NFL athlete. So listen, credit to the NFL and their incredible medical experts. They have found a cure for COVID. I'm very, I'm very proud of the NFL. Going from a 32-team field now down to the two teams, you're not going to have as many of these injury reports relating to COVID. So the odds are skewed. Or, you know, the, the, the sample size is much smaller as we move from December to January and February. Okay, Dan. Okay, you're missing my joke. They're not testing yeah. as much as what's happening here. Are there, you know, there's no way. There's, just, there's no way. But, but yeah, we'll go next year. We'll go next year. I'm holding you have, Dan, you have the hookup. We're not going to talk about what your hookup is, but we should be going. Should be going. Well, by, this, by, by the next time we we, ha, we we have a chance to go ready your own, my hookup might be retired. So that's, I, I need to act soon. It's problematic. Okay. So busy week this week. What we are insinuating, had we been on Radio Row, the Brian Flores case is still really the hottest story in sports law. We're going to address that. Alvin Kamara, a surprise kind of criminal story on the heels of the Pro Bowl. We will talk about that. Finally. An update in the Trevor Bauer case, for better or for worse, we do have that. Tyler Skaggs, the case has been kind of flying under the radar. Federal criminal trial and jury selection began today. And then we're going to kind of talk about where we stand with the lockout. Before we get into it, we uh, would like to remind everyone this podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. I have been advised by our friends at Themis, in addition to sponsoring our soccer competition at New York Law School, they are also sponsoring the April 1st, 2022 UVA softball competition. Because we had a, one of you, one of you reached out who shall remain nameless. That goes to a school in the Northeast. You know who you are. And he said, can Conduct Detrimental sponsor our softball team? And I'm like, well, we are not making any money, so we can't sponsor your team. But we know these lovely guys at Themis. Maybe they'll sponsor your team because Themis is the greatest. They're the greatest bar review prep company in the world. And then I spoke to Themis, and I found out that they're sponsoring the entire softball competition. So you know what, Dan? There's your sports law connection for Themis. Those guys are sponsoring the softball competition. How about that? Maybe we should have our own softball team, Dan. I was a much better hockey player than I was a softball player. Okay. So, Brian Flores, Dan, you missed our last episode. We wanted to take a brief stop to talk about the Washington football team congressional hearings. But, you know, just a brief kind of detour as we get back into the Brian Flores stuff. So, Dan, I'm going to give you the floor because you missed the last episode. Where do you stand with the Brian Flores case? We're now just over a week since uh, the lawsuit dropped. Where do you stand with this? Well, you know, I've been checking the court docket. The, the summons and complaint hasn't even been served yet. 
on the National Football League or the Giants, Broncos or Dolphins. So the clock on the response to the complaint doesn't begin until there's been service of process. I would imagine in this kind of scenario where the lawyers probably have a, some idea of who the others are and have somewhat of a, a connection that you'd waive service of process. But I haven't seen any court filings that have waived the service of process. So we're kind of on pause until there's been actual service. But from that point, the NFL will have 21 days to respond to the complaint. And as they did in the John Gruden lawsuit, I would expect to see a motion to dismiss for failure to state a cause of action, as well as a motion to compel arbitration. But the recent news regarding the Houston Texans and the possibility of Flores amending his complaint to include some type of retaliation-based accusation brings up the, you know, the point that I've been making all along that I don't know if Brian Flores can proceed here as a single plaintiff in a class action lawsuit. I think it's imperative that additional named plaintiffs join the lawsuit as putative class representatives. Why? Flores' claims aren't necessarily typical of those of the class. He's been an NFL head coach. He's been hired. He's been in the job for three years. Whereas he's pointing to many others who've never even gotten the opportunity. And I don't know that he would serve as, quote unquote, an adequate class representative under those circumstances, nor might his claims be typical of those facing other members of the class. And the typicality and the adequacy element are two of the core foundational requirements in order to get a class certified for a class action lawsuit. So in order to maximize the, the chances of a class being certified, I think you will need to have different proposed class representatives representing different components of the story, such as you know coordinators who've gone on many interviews like Eric Bieniemy that have never gotten the head coaching position, putative general manager candidates who've been in, on interviews and haven't gotten the job. So in order to, to sort of paint the full picture, we need to have class representatives that comprise all the different elements of what he's alleging. I'm hearing the same thing that you are, that, and I guess to our underlying point that I know you and I have made clear, I mean, maybe I don't want to speak for you. I think Brian Flores, I understand the general crux of the lawsuit, and I think that he raises a, a point that the NFL has now had to respond to, which we can talk about the Goodell statements. I think he raises a strong point that there is a problem with diversity in the NFL. I still have trouble seeing why he has a winning case here, 100%. Do I think that the Giants have defenses? I do. Do I think the Broncos have defenses? I do. I think his best case might be against the Dolphins and firing him prematurely when no one gets fired, you know, for having those two types of successful seasons and overachieving. I think that's where my antenna starts going up a little bit, but I don't know. It's no hope and a prayer. There's no, there's no discovery that we're aware of that, that locks in this case. It's all, you know, right. Dan, right. It's the expression that I, I love saying, right. From a few good men. It's not what you believe. It's what you can prove. And like, we don't know if he can prove this as of today. There's not, there's nothing out there definitively. There's one strong piece of evidence that has already been included in the complaint. So much of the attention has been placed on, on the Belichick quote. I don't, I still don't. I, no, 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 no. You're missing the point. It's not the Belichick quote that gets this lawsuit passed a motion to dismiss. It's the admission by Troy Vincent, the NFL executive vice president of football operations, who basically admitted that there's a double standard. I, I mean, I'll, I'll read his quote from no, the but, complaint. There's a double standard. Let's just go back to coach Tony Dungy, who was let go in Tampa after a winning season. Coach Wilkes, just a few years prior, was let go after one year. So this admission from one of the most, from one of the highest ranking NFL executives, and Troy Vincent is not just some, you know, random vice president. He's the executive vice president of football operations. And in order to get past a motion to dismiss, the complaint needs to allege facts which create a plausible inference of racial discrimination. You've got an admission from the defendant that there's a double standard. I think that's more than just you a had plausible an admission, inference. You had an admission from Roger Goodell over the weekend that the NFL has got to be doing it better. I'm not- I'm That not, too, that too. Yeah, I, I'm not, and also brief, brief detour, great find Dan on the NFL.com story that disappeared that was favorable to Brian Flores, that there was an unnamed witness that overheard this $100,000 bribe from Stephen Ross. The NFL is, is kind of all over the place at this point. But I, I'm, I'm not saying that I, I actually, you know, assuming that he gets the class certified, I'm, I mean, I, I, we'll, we'll see. I think he has enough to get into discovery. But I think, like, 
I don't know, if, whatever comes out in discovery, I think the Giants still have a good faith, unless there's some smoking gun email that I don't know if you can necessarily rely on. I still think the Giants and the Dolphins have defenses. If you ask me to put odds in it, I think those two are not good cases for him. The Dolphins, we'll see. I don't know what's, what's going to be there with respect to the Dolphins. But Dan, that goes to the burden shifting in this case. To get past a motion to dismiss, you know, Flores does not need to preemptively address the alleged legitimate non-discriminatory reasons. He needs to create, it's a lower threshold, a plausible. He has to get past the plausibility threshold. And I think he's already done that through the use of statistical analysis and the complaints, the sheer numbers involved, the admissions by the NFL, the Belichick text. And you know, he's got even an uphill battle, though, on a motion to dismiss, even putting aside these great factual components of the complaint. I've done an analysis. I've gone on to Westlaw Pacer. This case is before Judge Valerie Caproni in the Southern District of New York. I have researched and tried to identify every single lawsuit involving employment discrimination based on race where claims were asserted under either Title VII or Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act, which are going to be the claims that Flores raises. And she's had about 20 cases assigned to her that have been publicly reported in Westlaw opinions, and almost invariably, the vast majority of the reported decisions on Rule 12b6 motions, and I think some are Rule 56, ended up in the defendants prevailing on a motion to dismiss for a motion for summary judgment. And then expanding the lens beyond Judge Caproni within the Southern District of New York, it just seems that the standard to get by a motion to dismiss at least has been interpreted by the judges in the SDNY as a very high bar and the vast majority of cases get dismissed on a Rule 12b6 motion. I think this is one of the outliers. I think it's one of the outliers because of the Troy Vincent admission and How about the, the numbers? And lengthy history. How about the statistics? The numbers never lie, right? We've now gone up them. I think this is this is where I wanted to take our, our conversation. I think we could both agree. The case has some legs. It's going to get into discovery. I think you might think the case is a little bit stronger than I do, but I'm willing to hear, waiting to see what discovery says. I'm only assessing the motion to dismiss her. Sure. We haven't had discovery. I can't I yeah. can't speak to the Rule 56 issues yet because we haven't you know, taken any evidence. I'm talking about can they get by a Rule 12b6 motion? I think they I can. Think this case, yeah. I, I think, think this can. case is one of those exceptions. What but, about arbitration? We're going to get to arbitration in a minute. I want to give you one other fact. We've got to fill our listeners in who not, maybe aren't listening as closely as we are. I think you and I, Dan, we spoke about it offline, and I think you know my thoughts uh, from social media. I think the lawyers in this case... I'm going to blame the lawyers. I'm just because I, I don't. I don't want to blame uh, Brian Flores. I'm going to blame the lawyers until I hear otherwise. I think a misstep was made in this case. The lawsuit was filed on Tuesday of last week, while Brian Flores was was the front runner for the Houston Texas job, and he was interviewing for the Saints job. I don't think we've heard if he was one of the main guys who did for the Saints job, but he was the front runner for this Texas job, at least according to several reports. The reports I'm seeing either have him as the front runner. Or as the number two guy behind Josh McCown. Josh McCown is very interesting. Josh McCown has no, let alone no head coaching experience. He has no coaching experience. He's a recently retired NFL player, played a little bit for the Texans. People think he's a whiz kid and he's the next coming. But the complaint, if you read the Brian Flores complaint, he's almost explaining someone like Josh McCown to a T. Someone that's Caucasian, but has less coaching experience that someone is more qualified than is African-American. And it's not fair that those people are getting the jobs. So what I think happened, and Dan, you can tell me if you think I'm on the right send here. There was a, some reports, whether he was the finalist, who was the number two, or you know whether it was number one or number two, the reports seemed to be across the board that the Texans were down to three guys, Josh McCown, Ryan Flores, and the Eagles defensive coordinator, Jonathan Gannon. So I think the lawyers on Flores' side made a calculated risk. They said, there's three finalists left. One is African-American and two are Caucasian. If we back out right now, guess who's going to get the job? Either Gannon or McCown, in which case we have this whole narrative that Flores is more qualified than both of them and he didn't get it and blah, 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 blah. Fast forward, Dan, what happened? I think the lawsuit did change the Texans' equation but not in the same way that I think Flores anticipated. What they said was, well, we can't give the job to McCown. He's got no qualifications. The optics would look really bad. We don't want to give it to Gannon because we don't really feel that strongly about Gannon. Flores got ruled out. Pick your reason as to why he got ruled out. What the Texans did is then they decided to give the job to a guy who was helping them interview, Lovey Smith, a radar off the board, an African-American coach. 
So it puts Flores in a weird spot because he has to kind of argue I should have gotten that Texans job. But he also has to say that, like, Lovey Smith was not deserving of the job, which uh, it's a it's an odd conundrum, right? Do you really think Lovey Smith was going to get hired if this lawsuit wasn't filed? I think you no, no chance between the filing of the lawsuit and this compromise candidate. And in fact, that that's what Flores's attorneys are arguing that there was almost a cause and effect, like like retaliation. I wouldn't characterize it as retaliation. I think it does show that the actions of the Texans <laughs> were motivated by this lawsuit. I think there's an important point to be made here, Dan. I, I think that the Texans really pulled a wild card here, one that Florida's lawyers didn't expect. I really think that's what happened. Unquestionably, because now pre-suit, we had just one black NFL coach. And now within a week after the filing of lawsuit, that number has tripled with the addition of Lovey Smith and Mike McDaniel to the ranks. So the dynamic... And the context looks dramatically different in less than one week. I would say that if you file this lawsuit, if you had waited a week and dropped it on Monday of the week of the Super Bowl, it would have been an atomic bomb in the middle of Super Bowl week. Can I, I'm I'm a a million, I'm going to agree with you. And some people yell at me on Twitter for making this point. I don't think I'm wrong though. Two things. If McCown got this job over Flores and Flores didn't get a head coaching job, he hadn't filed a lawsuit. You know how good that would make the lawsuit look? Josh McCann, who has no qualifications, beat up Brian Flores. Just said to, that that's you don't. I don't need to know anything about discovery, right? I, I just feel strongly about the theory of the case. I don't yeah. feel strongly about the Giants theory. I think they had a number of non-discriminatory reasons to hire Brian Dayball. Brian Dayball is really qualified. Josh McCown is not qualified. That's the perfect guy to be going up against Mano Mano and Brian Flores. It's perfect. And how about Kellen Moore being hired in Miami? Imagine if that had gone down. Right. 32-year-old offensive coordinator instead of, right. uh, you know, a, a qualified uh, right. black head coach. It, what I feel uncomfortable, and someone can tell me I'm wrong. Dan, you can tell me I'm wrong. Anyone listening to this that can hit me up in DMs tell me I'm wrong. I feel that this was a case, I'm going to say it, and people can get mad at me. I think the lawyers jumped the gun here. And I think the lawyers jumped the gun, you know, uh, and maybe this is a good reason. I'm not one to say if it is or isn't, but. I don't understand why this lawsuit had to be filed on February 2nd. From a strategic standpoint, it still makes no sense to me. It makes less and less sense. And what I think they have done, unintentionally, I'm sure, was potentially cost Brian Flores his coaching career for what? To win the headlines? You know, yeah. let's. I, I would love if Brian Flores got the Houston Texans job and he was so pissed at, at the Giants. You and I both love the Giants. And then he sued the Giants, right? You, you still can coach. Right. But now now I'm concerned that Brian Flores is never going to coach again in the NFL. Why? For an unnecessary reason that they that they waited, that they filed a week too soon. I just it makes me so uncomfortable. And that's the conversation. Yeah. People hate lawyers. People get greedy. But if this case was taken on a contingency, Dan, which I don't know one way or the other, I assume it was. This is them going for the home run. Right. They can set up the retaliation claim and they can win the headlines. They give two weeks of headlines leading up to the Super Bowl. I just something about the case and all the interviews I saw on ESPN and CBS with the lawyers talking over Brian Flores time and time again. It's just like something rubs me the wrong way about about the attorney's involvement here. I just it's something well, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Well, Flores pulls the trigger on the lawsuit. Douglas Wigdor does not determine whether to file a lawsuit. The client makes that determination. I think Flores would have been on higher moral ground and legal ground. Legal if ground. He had been turned down, if he had been turned down for two more jobs. The Texans job and the Saints job. But he gave them and a reason. Then, he gave them the biggest then, out. He gave them the biggest out because this was going to yeah. be an objective distraction. He still has a good case, though. He still has a good case. But I think it may have come at the cost of his NFL coaching career because by, it, it's not just the filing of a lawsuit, but the statements made by his attorneys after Lovey Smith got the job just right out of the gate without any investigation made the accusation that the, the Texans made their hiring decisions because of this lawsuit. I get what it. NFL owner is ever going to want to hire Brian Flores after that kind of statement? And I think he should have kept his powder dry for another week and his lawsuit would have been at a much higher legal ground. I mean, he's got a great case anyway. Let's not make any, let's not he's make got a case. He's got a case. But, don't, let's not say yeah. it's a great case. He's got a case. He's going to get into discovery. It's, we don't know if it's a great case. Well, look at what he's accomplished so far. He's created a discussion, a nationwide discussion around racial discrimination in the National Football League. Part of his objectives have already been accomplished. I agree. He wants to win and he wants to work, but this is not being viewed as a frivolous lawsuit. But but you're not. 
we're having two different conversations. The conversation about starting the narrative and, and influencing change, he's already done it. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not saying to be facetious. Mission accomplished. Roger Goodell has put his hands up, mea culpa. You know, we got to fix this. We got to have task forces, whatever we need to do. You know, that's the part he won. But the part about the legal case, I think he changed his course of history a little bit. If he just interviews the Texan job, whatever. Dan, I, I think the, the PR case, the movement, the social movement case, Brian Flores has done an excellent job. But that's we're your lawyers. We're arguing the legal case. And I think he's made his legal case worse. I think he could have helped the case. I definitely agree with you there by waiting and more importantly, preserving his his employment prospects at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. He could have done both. And and sort of the, the, the fan of drama and theater in me would have really appreciated dropping this lawsuit on the Monday or Tuesday of Super Bowl week and creating chaos throughout the National Football League, the kind of chaos that I thought the St. Louis Rams relocation lawsuit yeah. would have done if that had gone forward to trial. This was even going to be bigger. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's it's going to get quiet anytime soon. But the news cycle, the best you know range time frame for the news cycle would have been Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of the actual Super Bowl week. It would have cast a shadow over the whole game. But again, the goal is to win and not necessarily to dominate the news headlines and to do the most advantageous, you know, dropping of the lawsuit for PR purposes. He had a good case. He has a strong complaint. And I think this is going to be a, a long haul and they're going to be in here for the long game to try to prevail, not only on summary judgment, motion to dismiss, but affect real meaningful change in the National Football League, while at the same time securing enough damages so that his employment prospects aren't going to matter. Okay, I'll let you have the final word on that. Just uh, as a note, Dan, we mentioned the Goodell statement. This is when we're talking about, you and I both agree. I think he's won on that ground. The NFL is now moving to change. I hate that it took a lawsuit for them to do anything. They're going to talk about changing the Rooney rule, but this is from Goodell's statement on Saturday. We understand the concerns expressed by Coach Flores and others this week. While the legal process moves forward, we will not wait to reassess and modify our strategies to ensure that they are consistent with our values and long-standing commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. In particular, we recognize the need to understand the lived experiences of diverse members of the NFL family to ensure that everyone has access to opportunity and is treated with respect and dignity. So good statement from Goodell. I think that somewhat makes up for the horrendous statement that the NFL had within an hour of the lawsuit when they're like, hey, we uh, investigated everything. It's only been 45 minutes, but there's no merit to any of the claims. Congrats and have a nice day. I, I do wish that they would have Goodell would have apologized for that heinous, horrendous, hastily written statement. But you know what? I guess I guess we'll take this. Dan, do you want to talk about Gruden and the arbitration clause? And it's Flores and the arbitration clause. Yeah. The, two, the two cases are linked. You know, standard NFL coaching contracts, like a lot of player contracts, have language in it that makes the NFL bylaws and constitution you know, govern the contractual relationship. And in the constitution and bylaws, there's a provision that mandates that Roger Goodell would preside over any legal disputes arising between the coach and team or as between, you know, involving other members, players or, you know, executives in the NFL. It's basically a, a, a wide sweeping arbitration provision that would apply to any kind of legal dispute between the coach and the team or as between the coach and anyone else in the league. And I wrote an article earlier this week on conduct detrimental. I think there's this narrative that, you know, in the post deflate gate world, everyone makes this assumption that these arbitration clauses are rubber stamps, they're enforceable, and the Flores case and the Gruden case is going to end up in private arbitration before NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell simply because there's a mandatory arbitration clause in the contract. And Dan, I have to ask you, I wrote about this. What do you think about the notion of all these tort claims asserted against the National Football League being adjudicated by the NFL's highest paid executive. Do you think these cases end up in arbitration simply because the contracts require it? I mean, it would be very unfair. I saw the case that you cited uh, on the Yankees case. I think it was the Staten Island Yankees case that it would be unfair for the head of uh, baseball to provide preside over the arbitrations. It's like those uh, the cases they teach in law school, those Carnival Cruise cases, right? The ones, uh, I think they had a mandatory... I think it was a mandatory form selection clause in like Alaska or Hawaii or some crazy state. And, you know, I don't know. Do I think it's fair? No. But if you agreed to it, right, if that was collectively bargained for and you agreed no. to those. So no collective bargaining here. This is not a federal. Had... See, in, in, in the player cases, the arbitration provision is 
sort of part and parcel of the um, you know Article 46 and the NFL player co- standard NFL player contract, which is part of the CBA, and that's governed by federal law. And arbitrations before the Federal Arbitration Act governed by federal law. There's no there's no collective bargaining here. This is just a a, a state law driven contractual relationship. So the strong federal policy in favor of arbitration doesn't quite resonate as strongly in the coach versus team versus NFL litigation as it would in the player context. Interesting. I guess we could still say there was a meeting of the minds, right? And the coach allowed this provision to go into the contract. So I mean, there are outs, there are outs. There's, there's no, you know, a hundred percent it's rubber stamp. There are certain legal grounds for either vacating arbitration awards or disqualifying arbitrators before the arbitration proceeding begin. And the one that I pointed to in my article on conduct detrimental is the bias argument. It's called evident partiality under federal law, under New York law, which might govern here. The standard is the appearance of bias, which is a much lower threshold. And certainly the chief executive officer of the main defendant that's being accused of class-wide racial discrimination, that CEO shouldn't be deciding the merits of claims filed against his his employer, which, by the way, also involve class action issues. And last time I checked, Roger Goodell didn't graduate law school and has no familiarity with how to adjudicate or even think about understanding issues relating to class actions, the numerosity, the, the different elements of class certification, as well as the concept of subclasses. He doesn't even have a law degree. No NFL commissioner has ever presided over a league arbitration involving class-wide claims. And I think this is, as far as it gets, as much of a no-brainer, 100% guarantee that the Gruden, that the judge in Las Vegas, as well as the Southern District of New York judge in the, in the Flores case, I can't see any circumstances where there are tort claims asserted against the NFL that the judge would permit or, or compel arbitration in front of an arbitrator who is employed by the NFL. It just, it just seems so absurd to me, but we've gone through so many of these cases where these arbitration cases or decisions are upheld by courts that I think the, ref, the reflex of most commentators, people like Peter King, Mike Florio and others are to assume that there's a high likelihood that this case ends up being dismissed on a motion to compel arbitration. And I don't see there being any chance at all here. I think, I think it's as close, to, as close to zero as it gets based upon some of the reasoning and analysis that, that I used in my article, citing, of course, the Staten Island Yankees decision from two months ago, which I believe might be the only case involving a professional sports team where the league tried to have tort claims adjudicated by the league commissioner. It might be the only case on record where that fact pattern exists. Well, Dan, let's put a pin in in that one. We'll obviously follow this case very closely. We'll see what comes of it. Um, We'll see if Brian Flores lands anywhere, let alone, uh, I mean, there's not going to be a head coach. We know that for certain at this point. Dan, one nugget from the Lovey Smith press conference that people had tagged us in. Lovey Smith, I guess, at his press conference, I was in my deposition today, I missed it, but, you know, we have fans that fill us in. He said, at least if you want to believe this quote, he said he's not sure when he became a finalist for the job. And I think that's kind of telling, right? We were like, where did Lovey Smith come from? How did that happen? And then Lovey Smith seemed to be giving a wink, wink, nod, nod that something uh, happened at the 11th hour. Wonder what that could be. Okay, Dan, let's hit this one quick. Uh, I'm not sure how much more we have in it, but we should address it for people that did not see the news. Alvin Kamara, running back the New Orleans Saints, Pro Bowl running back. Why do I say Pro Bowl running back? Not to necessarily talk about how good Alvin Kamara is, which we all know if we play fantasy sports, but because Alvin Kamara got into a little bit of an incident at the Pro Bowl. Dan, it's a messy case. Uh, We're not going to share the pictures or anything like that. It's a messy claim that the uh, alleged victim involved here basically gave a statement to police uh, in the hospital uh, how bad it was. Pictures show someone with a lot of heavy damage to their face the reports that i was seeing stomping kicking there was a big group that included camara dan what are you hearing on the charges bond all that stuff you know all the all the factors are cutting against alvin camara here this has three components that you know sometimes you know with, with the with these accusations you don't know what the truth is uh you know there are going to be bare denials but here you've got videotape you've got an admission by the player and serious physical injuries 
I mean, those are like three strikes against Alvin Kamara. So we now pivot to what are the Saints going to do about it? What is the league going to do? What repercussions could Kamara face criminally? Because this is not something that the district attorney's office in Nevada are going to necessarily, you know, allow a quick plea bargain on. He might do, he might do jail time here. And then, of course, there's going to be civil lawsuits. So uh, these three factors, the tape, the admission, and the injuries have opened up a Pandora's box of legal consequences that are going to come to bear very quickly on the civil, criminal, league disciplinary side, as well as the contractual uh, relationship between the Saints and Kamara. I don't think they're going to cut him. If this were a domestic violence case, forget it. He's gone. So I think the I think the Saints are going to you know just defer to the National Football League on this. And this is obviously going to be a suspension. But how long will the suspension be? I don't, I don't think we can we can say at this point. I think we're looking at a multi-game suspension. But it will obviously tie into his availability by virtue of the criminal case. Yeah, he's going to have a bigger issue to deal with beyond just the National Football League. I'm going to read portion of the details for probable cause from the police report. You know, we're not going to show the video or anything. Uh, I don't think it's out. This is the the victim is, uh, I, I won't say his name, but we'll, we'll say his last name starts with the letter G. Uh, G states he was leaving the club for the night and made his way to the elevators. There was a group of people waiting as he started a conversation with one of them. As soon as the elevator opened, G and the large party he was speaking with began walking towards the open elevator doors. One male, who would later be identified as Alvin Kamara, put his hand on G's chest, stopping him from walking into the elevator. So I guess Kamara's group was trying to walk in, and Kamara allegedly didn't want to let G in. G pushed Kamara's hand off his chest. G stated he was pushed hard, causing him to stumble back. After G was pushed, he states he was being hit and kicked by multiple people and lost consciousness. The only one that G can remember is described as a black male in his 20s. He was approximately 5'10", muscular, had either dreadlocks or braided hair. The suspect was wearing either a gray or gray sweater. Dan, the injuries are bad. In addition to criminal case, uh, you know, I worked in the personal injury side for a while. It's an orbital fracture on the right eye. It's a really, really bad injury. I know I saw the pictures. It doesn't look like he can open his eye right now. So it doesn't look good. Orbital, orbital fracture is one of the worst fractures you can have. It's not good. Kamara's best defense might be something out of court to have one of the other people step up and assume full responsibility for it where this becomes almost akin to you know the uh, ray lewis situation at the super bowl where he was part of a crowd and maybe it was Kamara, maybe it was somebody else and there may be some question as to who who inflicted you know the damage but i think there's an admission from Kamara that he punched him he punched him no, because I, he called somebody ugly so I, how do you get around that he admits and, it right I have it here. I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, this is the thing, Dan, right? Like we, we joke as lawyers. Like I, I put that Dave Chappelle clip up from the Chappelle show. Like I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth. You know, the joke is like, wh- what benefit do you have talking to the cops? And I hope, I hope is he was talking to some lawyer that advised him one way or the other, but this was not a smart statement. This is a Kamara statement to the police. Kamara remembers G calling one of, one of his friends ugly. And then later said, quote, I'll whoop your ass too. Kamara said he saw a fight break out, and so G get punched. Kamara threw a couple punches, thinking the guy was running away. Kamara doesn't remember if he punched G while he was on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how Kamara gets around for this. He's admitting that he... he the only thing is self-defense, right, or justification, but the fact that he called someone ugly doesn't... I mean, we know there's one thing, right, justification. If someone says something, uh, you know, verbally abusive, you can't turn around and slug him in the face, right? That's That's not allowed. Well, obviously, Dan, they didn't teach criminal procedure at the University of Tennessee, because I'm not saying you should never talk to police officers, but if you're suspected of a crime, you need to think about the potential legal consequences, maybe not make any statements like that against interest without an attorney. He didn't understand the legal consequences associated with talking. So he's really kind of dug his own you know, grave here, so to speak, legally, because now you have the videotape, you have the police report, you have the admission, and you've got these serious injuries. I mean, it's like strike one, strike two, strike three, strike four. What's the next play here? And I don't understand or I can't comprehend how the prosecutors in this case would do anything other than seek jail time for this crime. I mean, there would be this huge outcry if you let a celebrity off the hook who basically knocks somebody out, caused an orbital fracture. This is not something you just sort of have a no contest, no low contendere and everybody walks away. 
these are these are serious injuries and it's a serious charge and i can't envision this legal situation criminally being cleared up between now and training camp other than just pleading guilty to it and serving time does raise the question as to whether the nfl will have anything to say about this while he's going through these criminal proceedings obviously with the specter of of criminal charges hanging over his head He's not going to be playing in the NFL, whether it's one game. I mean, he's going to be on the exempt list for as long as these criminal proceedings are pending. This is bad. It's bad. I actually think you're right, but you can tell me if I'm wrong, because I always like healthy disagreement. If this had happened in New Orleans, Dan, I have a feeling uh, they would not be pushing this as hard. It's Las Vegas. It's enemy territory, right? It's Raiders' home. It's not It's not the Saints' home. Well, to play devil's advocate, uh, it you know, Las Vegas wants to lure other professional sports franchises, right? Baseball and, you know, basketball. Maybe, maybe they're so used to misbehavior occurring on the strip that, you know, from a, from a tourism standpoint, they don't want to be seen as being heavy handed with criminal repercussions. But then again, tell OJ Simpson that. So I think the job of the police and the job of the prosecutors is to basically enforce the law here. And this is not uh, a situation where it's easily explainable or there's a there, there's an apparent. It's uh, on video and there's an admission. I mean, one and two. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, problematic but we'll keep an eye on that Dan I mean listen it's the offseason so it's gonna die down a little bit but uh, I think you're right I don't think he'd be playing next week if he was in the Super Bowl I don't think he'd be playing if this happened during the season but you know he's gonna have some time and as good as Alvin Kamara is unluckily for him he plays at a position that may be one of the most dispensable and disposable I'm not gonna give you that I'm not gonna give you that in Kamara Kamara is a special talent he's not like a you know some rando scrub Scrubby running back that's getting four yards to carry. Kamara is a legitimate talent. Okay, but you know the, he wouldn't be the first running back that a team parted company with and got into trouble with the law. They're not irreplaceable. Quarterbacks are irreplaceable. Left tackles are irreplaceable. Uh, I mean, it, we need to find out a little bit more here, and I don't think the Saints are going to cut bait with him. I just can't envision Alvin Kamara stepping on a football field week one of the 2022 regular season. Either he's going to be on the exempt list or serving the first of a minimum of a six-game suspension. Okay, Dan, I, when you make those predictions, you are usually right. I'm not one to disagree with you. Okay, Dan, I think we should move over to the baseball diamond. Dan, the big story today that broke late, I told you I was in an all-day deposition, so I missed the news cycle. I got tagged 100 people in the Bauer stuff. Trevor Bauer, for better or worse, cleared of criminal charges after a month's worth of investigation. The DA, I'll give you their statement. After a thorough review of all available evidence, including the civil restraining order proceedings, witness statements, and the physical evidence, the people are unable to prove the relevant charges beyond a reasonable doubt. I think I told you, I spoke to someone for Forbes about two weeks ago, and I said, I don't know, the, the restraining order proceedings, the judge basically said the main witness the main victim was ruled not credible so that's not going to look good for the criminal case so i don't think it's a surprise to anybody no criminal charges here dan thoughts on bauer i have some thoughts as well what do you think the inevitable civil lawsuit was going to be filed i think the absence of criminal charges doesn't foreclose a civil lawsuit being filed by the alleged victim i mean the standard of proof in a civil case is preponderance of the evidence in a criminal case, it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So the conviction or the, the belief by the prosecutor that they wouldn't have enough to secure a conviction doesn't mean that there isn't a bona fide civil case here. So I would expect the next shoe to drop to be the filing of a civil lawsuit by his alleged victim. And that could happen at any time. But now moving forward to the resumption of Trevor Bauer's Major League Baseball career, the question is, he's got one year left on his contract. And so many of his teammates on the Dodgers said, we don't want to have him as a teammate. So what happens to Bauer's career? I mean, Major League Baseball has to weigh in with its own investigation and maybe it will meet out discipline. But in the absence of criminal charges, how can the league levy a severe suspension against Trevor Bauer, given the statements made by the judge during the preliminary injunction hearing? I think we're looking at either no suspension or a very short suspension or even a suspension of moderate duration. But ultimately, I don't know that anybody's going to want to have Trevor Bauer absent some kind of a mea culpa or apology or, you know, not getting it. of his image. And I not don't know. Getting it. No, no, absolutely not. This is Bauer's version of an apology. Bauer's a, I don't know, people want to yell at me, they can yell at me. Bauer's a weird guy. I, Bauer does a lot of things that I, I think most people would never do. Bauer gave a statement today at 527 ET. 
I'm going to use my selective reading to not read certain bad words that I don't think people need to know. Bauer, quote, I never punched this woman in the face. I never punched her in the fill in the blank. I never scratched her face. I never had blank with her or blanked her in any way. I never assaulted her in any way at any time. So all you need to know, we spend a lot of time in this podcast, the narrative from the media and the other, I think the other side was that, hey, Bauer did some really messed up things, but the victim consented to all of them, all of the messed up things. And Dan, and I, I remember you and I had this conversation. Well, whether, whether or not you can agree, this is messy, but whatever, we're, we're adults in the room, whether you can agree when, while you're unconscious to certain sexual acts. And you and I said, no, legally, you cannot consent to certain things while unconscious. Bauer is giving, from what I'm reading, a complete denial of everything, that nothing happened, that he didn't do anything bad. There was no assault that occurred in any way, shape, or form. Now, there are no criminal charges. The witness was deemed to be a non-credible by an impartial judge. So what's baseball going to do here? The guy has said emphatic denial, and the court agreed with him. And now the DA has agreed with him. There's no case here. I, I have a hard time seeing baseball punishing him. What what did he do wrong? Hasn't he just been a, a, just uh, cleared of everything? You know, we're talking about, about sexual assaults here, or alleged sexual assaults. League will have to do its own investigation because there'll be this huge outcry if the league does nothing and, and convenes no investigation. There's already been a baseline established with cases of domestic violence. And of course, some of those cases involve true domestic violence where either there's been a criminal case or at least some you know, obvious proof of an assault. And the baseline here, I think, has been, is between 30 games for an oldest Chapman, uh, I don't know, maybe 81 games at the top end. So the baseline here, we're looking at either between 30 and 80 games at the worst, but, but I think there's a mitigating factor in that the, 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 the judge denied the, the victim's motion for preliminary injunction, the statements made in open court by the judge, and the DA's decision not to proceed with a criminal prosecution. So I think if there's a su suspension at all, we're likely looking at the lower end of that range of something closer to 30 games, maybe even less than that. You asked me for my prediction, Dan, I think a civil case is coming here. I think the, yeah. you know, I don't think the victim went through the, this crazy media frenzy to just walk away. Uh, I don't think that. I think that a civil lawsuit's coming. And I think there's a world where, hey, you may have not, might not have met the necessary elements for this um, civil restraining order case. You maybe didn't meet them for beyond a reasonable doubt. But there's some lower level here, which Major League Baseball is not a court of law. Uh, it, it's something way less than that. That if there are more facts that come out, either via the uh, baseball investigation or via a civil lawsuit, a suspension will happen. But I'm just, I mean, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a Trevor Bauer fan. I do understand the version where Trevor Bauer has literally been acquitted of everything and is denying everything. So what, what do they have to pin on? But to your point, Major League Baseball doesn't need those standards. They have a much lower standard for suspension. Yeah. I think the civil lawsuit can play an important role in forcing Major League Baseball's hand a little bit, and it may be leveraging a settlement because the last thing that Bauer wants is to go under oath any further in this case. And if this is a civil lawsuit filed, it would obviously, well, not obviously, but probably get past a motion to dismiss. And, and, and Bauer is going to have to submit to, you know, deposition discovery and, and you know, there'll be a videotape deposition that will eventually surface in the public domain. He doesn't need that because not only is he trying to avoid a suspension for this year, but his contract ends at the end of the 2022 right. season. He's got to think about his future as a major league player. And I don't think any team will want to touch him if anything bad comes out of the civil discovery system or right. a, a, a civil lawsuit. So I think it's, it's in his best interest to try, if there's a, if there's a lawsuit, to not push the envelope and, and just deny, 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 and fight it all the way to a trial because that's going to adversely impact his earning power hey. as a major league baseball player. So I agree with you. I see the civil lawsuit as the next shoe to drop maybe as soon as this week or next week. Yeah. Deshaun Watson is uh, testing out that theory. He's not settling either. So Dan, here's Antonio the Brown did the civil yeah. lawsuits against Antonio Brown were obstacles. Dan, last sentence of the Trevor Bauer line, which just I think I just got to issue flag this for everybody. I never assaulted her in any way at any time. I'm staring at the picture that was released as part of this case. It was a picture of the victim with black eyes and looked in not great shape. There's only when when Bauer says I've never assaulted her in any way at any time, and you see a picture of the victim clearly. The picture shows that she was assaulted or hit by somebody. Either this individual is completely making this thing up or Bauer's lying. 
There is no in between. So I don't know what's going to come out in these these things, but you know, uh, you hear people make up cases, and Bauer is also an insane person. So I actually have no prediction on on who's right and who's wrong. I just I'm with you. I don't think we've seen the end of the saga. Well, I mean, every team needs starting pitching, so it says a lot that he's so toxic at this point that maybe no team wants to touch him. But you're talking about, you know, a top of the rotation starting pitcher that can actually make the difference for a team, you know, not making the playoffs to making the playoffs and maybe winning a World Series. Players like him, a few and far between. It's, it, it, it says a lot about the gravity of these allegations that he's almost persona non grata within his own clubhouse. And I don't think that any fan base would countenance their team signing Trevor Bauer absent some you know, uh, you know helpful information coming out about this incident or maybe some apology tour and i don't think there's an apology tour in that's law. it he just gave you the apology tour that's his version of apology that he's not changing that he associates with the wrong people but he's not the monster people paint him to be he's not apologizing there'll be protests in every market i'm not I, you're not getting an argument with me i i am a I am not really the biggest fan of Trevor Bauer, if you couldn't catch that. Okay, Dan, let's move on to the next, uh, probably a story that needs more attention in baseball, and it certainly will be as the trial is now really upon us. You know, for those that don't know, and I imagine most most listening to our show do, uh, really a tragic, just a pure tragedy in baseball in 2019. One of those, at least for me personally, I know where I was when I heard the news when Tyler Skaggs, pitcher on the Los Angeles Angels, passed away. Just really tragic and died from a, an apparent uh, drug overdose, which I think has now been confirmed. Um, by toxicology reports and whatnot. There's a multitude of cases floating out there. There's a wrongful death case. Um, I think there's actually two wrongful death cases in different states, but there's also the criminal case. Trial that we're talking about would usually have it. The criminal case is going to go first with the higher burden of proof, and then the civil cases will go after that. So after several delays, we're now three years post this tragic incident. Eric Kay, the former Los Angeles Angel staffer, is accused and charged with the distribution of drugs leading to Tyler Skaggs' deaths. So the federal case is on, jury selection begins, and I think the intriguing part here, there are several Angels players that have been called to testify as witnesses. Dan, go ahead. I mean, why do we care about this criminal trial so much? There seems to be, you know, uh, at least the appearance of evidence of guilt involving Eric Kay. And he's not just a mere staffer. He was the director of communications, who, by the way, had a, had a serious drug problem of his own, went into drug rehab. The Angels paid for it, knew about it. And there were accusations that he supplied opioids to other players. And the reason why this, why this case remains so intriguing and compelling, besides obviously justice for, for, for Tyler Skaggs and for his family, you know, where this case will lead, what we're going to end up learning as a result of the testimony and trial, how widespread was this conspiracy? How many other players were supplied opioids? Did players themselves act as agents of, uh, in distributing, you know, the, you know, any any of these, you know, illegal drugs? And I think the tentacles are going to go beyond just Eric Kay and and Tyler Skaggs, and we're going to learn how widespread of a problem there may have been within the Angels clubhouse, and or whether the Angels knew about it or did anything about it. So that's, I think, on the broader scale, why this case is so intriguing, because the the Los Angeles Angels have done everything possible to shut down any attempts to subpoena the team for records in this lawsuit. And now, you know, there's been so much of a lid placed over the facts in this case. Now we're going to find out who was involved and how widespread this alleged conspiracy was. And how many players associated with the Angels were involved and how the, the team dealt with it and how many team officials knew about this. So this is this this has the potential to really blow up into a major problem for the for the team and for Major League Baseball. Also, just as a maybe a procedural note, jury selection was scheduled for today and the trial was supposed to start this week. I've had the uh, the opportunity, Dan, to sit with tra- attorneys uh, handling trials. I handled one trial of my own solo. At least in New York, you don't have jury selection the same day the trial starts. Usually the judge spaces out a little bit. Usually you're going to have to pick backups. There's going to be you know peremptory challenges. But somehow in Texas, they don't mess around over there. They go from jury selection to the case opening arguments. Same day. It's federal court. I mean, long, long time ago, I, I, I clerked in the Eastern District of New York and you did the jury selection and then the jury was impaneled. So the jury selection comes first, but there's no gap 
or a significant gap between the jury selection and the, and the commencement of the trial. It happens in fairly short order, but not the same day. I don't recall. I don't recall those. <laughs> it was pretty quick. So apparently they didn't have too much difficulty seating, no. you know, seating jurors here. They, so maybe yeah. they would if this. So this obviously this case is being tried in Texas because uh, I think I'm not sure who they were playing, but the Angels were playing a road game when this occurred. Yep. Had this incident occurred in California, maybe you'd have some more bias with Angels fans, but I don't think you're necessarily running into the same issue as much, you know, with the case that is in Texas. The, the test- death cases are really fascinating to me because there are two different cases. Rusty Harden is, I think, representing the parents or the, you know, Tyler Skaggs. I think it's family. I think it's in family. Case, yeah. And the parents are the plaintiffs in another case, and they're split jurisdictions as one lawsuit in California, one lawsuit in Texas, and they made a strategic decision to, to file separately and have different plaintiffs in, in the different actions. I think maybe to avoid consolidation or the transferring of one case to another jurisdiction to basically get two bites at the apple here. I wanted to read this this part I know was, was kind of going viral. This is from TJ Quinn at ESPN. During opening, defense attorney, who is uh, obviously representing Eric Kay, says Matt Harvey will be named as a possible drug source for Tyler Skaggs. Matt Harvey, former pitcher with the New York Mets, went to the Angels for a cup of coffee. He says, Eric Kay asked Tyler Skaggs the night he died where he got, quote, pink pills. Says Tyler Skaggs told him, those are Percocets I got from Harvey. Harvey will be called as a witness this week. So the reports, Dan, that you and I read were that seven players were on the prosecution's witness list. Maybe there was some uh, misinformation in the reports or maybe Harvey was going to be used by the prosecution, but the defense is going to claim that Harvey is going to be at the center of their defense. That where did, essentially, I think this is the argument, where did Tyler Skaggs get the, 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 you know, the pills that caused his demise? How do we know they didn't come from Matt Harvey, from someone else? And that's when you have a standard beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. You just got to poke holes. And the the autopsy, I'm not I'm not a pharmaceutical expert, but Percocets. And it was not part of the contents of what was in Tyler Skaggs system. Wasn't it uh, oxycodone, fentanyl mixed with alcohol? Do we Uh, we know? But I don't think we I don't think we anybody knew as of at least I didn't know. I didn't know that Matt Harvey was supplying drugs to anyone, whether it was Percocet, whether it was something else, whether it was this, whether it was not, whether there was a portion of the concoction. Um, yeah. We'll see. I mean, but the, the I guess the, the general allegation is that the defense is going to show that Matt Harvey also was a supplier of drugs. Maybe those contributed to his death. We're not sure. That seems to be the portion of the case that people are taking a hold of, which we didn't expect. Yeah. I didn't I didn't hadn't heard anything about that. That's why it's so um, helpful to you know track the case on Pacer and look at the witness filings, uh, you know, look at the court filings. It was a battle over keeping the witness lists confidential. I think the government fought to you know, keep the witness lists under seal and the Los Angeles Times filed a, a motion to our friends, our friends yeah, at the LA yeah. Times, and, Bill Shaken, Nathan Fenno, both. Yeah, uh, and by the way, Nathan's writing about this trial while he's covering the Olympics in China. I like talk, his Beijing talk about versatility. I've been watching his Beijing pictures. We'll find a sports little story to cover the Olympics before they're done. I, I can guarantee that to our listeners. But the witness lists, which were released within the last week, not only identify the witnesses, but also the scope of their testimony. And when you go down the list next to all the Angels players, six out of the seven Angel, uh, former Angel players listed, you know, the description of their testimony says, we'll testify that Kay distributed the you know, drugs to Skaggs, quote unquote, and others. So six or seven players that are going to be witnesses in this trial are going to point at Eric Kay as being part of a, you know, he, he's sort of the, the, the drug dealer within the Angels clubhouse and he's, and he's supplying everybody. And maybe that, that, that team officials knew about it. This has the potential really to, you know, explode into a, a major public relations and legal problem for the Los Angeles Angels because there are two wrongful death actions lying in wait here that are going to they're going to leverage and utilize the testimony from the criminal case to bolster their civil case. So hold that thought because we're going to have another story that kind of hits on this too. This is from uh, I guess the opening argument on the prosecution size. It says Kay was providing opioids to multiple players who are expected to be named and even got them from the umpire's clubhouse attendant at the ballpark. So we're talking about a drug issue that's at the PR department from the players and now the umpire's clubhouse attendant. Like this is a pretty crazy story. And it, it would be odd if this just occurred in one ballpark, right? This is only one team that we're focused on. Yeah. Did MLB do an investigation here? I mean, this is, I think this so. Is, just this a, is not a staff story. 
This is the head of communications who went to drug rehab. You know, they found the drugs. In his, they found drugs in his desk. I remember I was really in the weeds when the story first came out. It was there was Venmo charges that people were kind of cross reference. But like I, this is a this isn't like a, a player drug issue. This is a locker room attendant, PR staffer. Like what what is going on in the Angels organization? Not winning. That's for sure. Not winning. And Dan, I was, I don't know, not selfishly is not the right, but they said seven Angels players are going to testify. And I'm like, Mike Trout might be on that list. So, you know, Matt Harvey, you know, former New York Met, great. I'll say Met, great. Kind of had to derail the rest of his career, but no Mike Trout, no Shohei Otani, but still some some big names here. CJ Crone, Cam Bedrosian, Blake Parker, I think Garrett Richards is also on the list. So we're going to see some de- decent names here. Okay, Dan, let's actually, I don't think anyone predicted this. We're going to actually stay with another sports law story involving the Los Angeles Angels. Who could have predicted that? Two Los Angeles Angels sports law stories. This one's going to be pretty quick because uh, this episode's gone a little long. Bubba Harding, their visiting locker room attendant, kind of made waves last year. Nobody seemed to bat an eye. This guy said he had uh, he was a visiting locker room attendant. So his main job, this guy Bubba Harding, he'd worked um, you know baseball for a number of years. I think I'm going to say a couple decades when I, whenever I read the report. But he said he had evidence that the, t- the game's best baseball players, mainly pitchers, Scherzer, Verlander, and Cole, among many others, relied on him to, uh, let's say, to get some help on their sticky situations. The pitchers were looking for those illegal 60 sticky substances. Um, this is dating back a couple of years. They would go to him. And he went to Sports Illustrated and showed text with Garrett Cole that reportedly showed just that. When the sticky memo came out, I think the report is that he was fired right after. So the optics were that he was behind the sticky situation. There's obviously some holes in his, his case, mainly because he's admitting to doing this, but he's mm-hmm. basically suing the Angels in Major League Baseball for some form of defamation. Case was kicked out of court, and then Dan, Mr. Appellate Lawyer, want to fill us in on, on what happened after that? Well, I mean, it kind of flew under the radar, but last week a California appeals court reinstated the defamation claims against Major League Baseball and the Los Angeles Angels. So, you know, of, of all the Major League Baseball teams, the LA Angels seem to have a lot of problems, not only on the field, but off the field as well. Yet none of that sticks to, to the team. And even their former general manager, Billy Epler, you know, lands on his feet and gets hired as the general manager of the New York Mets. So I think there's certainly some troubling accusations in the defamation case. I mean, they're making this guy the fall guy. And, you know, I think this is going to be, become a, you know, a problem. But because this is state court, not federal court, we don't learn a lot or know about about what happens day to day because the court, because there's no transparency around the court filing, certainly not to the same extent as there is with PACER in federal court. So that's why many of us missed the story when the case got appealed. And then last week when it was reinstated by the appellate court. So I don't know that this becomes a, a major PR nightmare for anybody unless this goes to trial. I mean, the, the risk, which we kind of alluded to, I think it could have been a PR nightmare, but at least at the time the story hit, I just think it got swept under the rug. If this story had hit now in the dead time of baseball, when people are ready to crucify both the players and the owners, I don't think either are getting it that easy. This could have been a monster story. The way the timing's going to line up, you know, depositions in this case aren't going to occur that quickly, but there was a world where this case is a complete animal. I tweeted it today. I don't think anybody cares, but I'm like, I don't know, proof? It's not a player. It's not a player. He's talking about like the big crazy thing, which, you know, the Yankees aren't going to get any relief for it. But Garrett Cole, if this is true, here's the proof we needed, was pitching on sticky substances for years. Right. And that's how we got that mega contract. So I don't know. I think the fact that, you know, Dan, we just got over the cycle. You and I didn't talk about it. Barry Bonds didn't make the Hall of Fame. Why? Because he cheated. Not because he got he got suspended from baseball because of some type of failing a drug test, because he took advantage of a rule that no one else was policing. So I, I don't know if these texts came out that Garrett Cole was was openly cheating. And here are the receipts. And here's the text message of Garrett Cole texting, wondering if you could help me with a sticky situation like I don't, it's not that different from then using steroids and getting an advantage. Like it's not that different. I don't, I don't. Yeah. Dan, compare that to the outcry, which followed the uh, accusation by Brian Flores that he was offered a hundred thousand dollar bribe right. by Stephen Ross to lose games. That accusation, which is an, just merely an, an unproven allegation in a civil lawsuit right. that generated major headlines. And it led to articles questioning whether uh, class action lawsuits could be brought by sports betters. I mean, that, that is a, certainly a serious accusation, but the notion that there's this industry-wide cheating going on by, by some of the most prominent pitchers. With the receipts, with the proof, the smoking gun. Yeah, yep, absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's funny what articles are interesting to me, what articles and what issues get on the national radar. And then there are there are others that are probably even more serious in terms of threats to the integrity of the game that no one is paying attention to. And this is certainly one of them. And the juxtaposition between the two stories is jarring. One getting no attention, which is almost a systemic industry-wide issue, versus one which is just simply an allegation directed to one owner and one team. I'm with you. I don't, I don't have anything else to add in that case, but one to pay attention to. Okay, I think we're ready to put this in books. Dan, believe it or not, believe it or not, podcast is sponsored by Themis Barview, top bar prep company in the world. I'm kind of running out of things, great things to say about Themis, but telling you Themis loves us. We will put out a, uh, uh, we'll put out the stats at some point this week, but our show, Dan, when you know this, our listenership has gone up about 300%, maybe even more than that, probably about closer to 400% year over year. If we don't say it enough, we mean it. Thank you for all the great support. Our newsletter is now over a thousand subscribers, whatever you want to call it. We post jobs, Taryn posts career advice. So I don't know, Dan, I love, I love seeing the the podcast, the uh, everything we do, you know, I just, we're clicking on all cylinders right now. So you got to count your lucky stars sometimes. Yeah. These are the salad days, Dan, of conduct detrimental. What are you doing for the Super Bowl, by the way? I'm running a lot of Super Bowl squares pools. So I'll probably be sitting by my Excel sheet with my two little girls and maybe my friend and his kids, but probably something like use the internet and don't get, don't get a cut of the proceeds. Otherwise you might be violating some state gambling laws. So. I don't listen. I there's some, I know some people. Okay. I run all my pools. You can, my friends and some of them are listening to this. I run an NFL playoff pool. I run a Super Bowl squares pool. I never take a cut of anything. I just write really funny emails and I get to rip on everybody. Dan, let me ask you this. We haven't done this in a while. I'm going to do my what to watch for. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to buy you about 30 seconds to think of yours. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. My what to watch for is an intriguing one. We're going to take, we're going to take one step back, but I had a bet, Dan, this is, I guess, is my what to watch for. It already happened, but I wanted to find an opportunity to talk about it because it's pretty insane. I placed a bet at the beginning of the year on Mac Jones to win the rookie of the year. And you know, I'm really plugged into Twitter. So the day that Cam Newton got cut from Twitter, what I did is I used my, uh, my sports law brain. And I go, how is this going to impact the betting markets? And I go, oh my God, Mac Jones is going to go from backup to week one starter. I'm going to get him at crazy odds. So, Dan, I grabbed Mac Jones to win rookie of the year 10 to 1, okay? From basically off the board to the minus 500 favorite going into week 17. Okay, Dan? Do you know what happened? You sold your ticket on prop swap. Jamar Chase had like a 300-yard receiving yards in one week or whatever. And my guy who was minus 500, I'm like, I'm not hedging. There's no way I'm hedging. Went from minus 500 to losing the rookie of the year in one week. So, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know. <laughs> I, it, was my, it was one of the worst beats I've ever had. And I didn't hedge on purpose. And it was so easy. I didn't do it. That's why secondary markets for sports betting are going to be a huge thing where you could take your, and I mentioned in prop swap jokingly, but there are companies like prop swap, wage wire that allow you to trade or sell your sports wager before the outcome is determined. So if you're looking really good, you, you could sell your ticket for an uncompleted contest for a major profit before the outcome is determined. So you, you know would be great on prop swap two weeks ago. If one of those potential betting entities reached out to us and they're like, maybe we want to sponsor you guys. Well, it's almost like that might've happened very recently, but we, we won't say their name, right? They can, they can uh, earn their keep. Dan, you're what to watch for. It could be something that happened. That was fun or something sporting event you're watching in the future. I got three. One oh my is, God. Three. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go through them quickly. One is speculative. The other two are are, are kind of more certain than that. Okay, in the John Gruden lawsuit, there was going to be a hearing on the motion to dismiss and the motion to compel arbitration by the National Football League. The hearing was scheduled for February 23rd, and a court filing yesterday or notation in the court docket indicated that that argument will now be pushed to the middle of April, an almost two-month delay, so it got me wondering May there be, may may there be a, a potential settlement in the offing? Was the delay in, in the hearing date a result of a, a request by the parties, or was it something that the court did sua sponte? So I wouldn't be completely shocked if there may be some news of a settlement somewhere down the road. I think the likelihood of that is pretty low right now, but the continuance of the oral argument date by two months at least got me thinking about that. Number two and three are both relating to the Brian Flores lawsuit. I would expect at any point this week or very soon 
for the lawyers to amend the class action complaint to add new allegations about the Houston Texans you know, coaching decision to include a potential retaliation charge, or at least a factual narrative as to what took place within the last week, as well as the potential joinder of new class representatives, or at least putative class representatives. I think at some point, this is going to be a multi-plaintiff lawsuit. I don't know if it's going to be Hugh Jackson or who, but- We're, we're think- separate lawsuits, right? If the class cert is denied, that's not stopping anyone from also filing their own lawsuit, right? Oh, but I think it might be most beneficial to join an existing lawsuit. You don't have to pay a filing fee right. and so much of the legwork has already been done in terms of getting the case in front of a judge. I think you're going to see the joinder of additional plaintiffs and that could happen at any point during the month of February. I would expect there to be two, three additional class action plaintiffs because as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I think the Flores claims are so specifically tailored to Flores. I know he mentions Eric Bieniemy and, and David Cawley and, and points to some other coaching situations, but he's had a head coaching job. And the reasons for his termination of employment with the Dolphins may be so unique to him regarding a breakdown in communications with the general manager Greer and, and issues that are so you know, particularized as to Brian Flores that he may not be a suitable or adequate class representative. So to hedge their bets, I think I think the plaintiff's attorneys need to have several prospective you know, plaintiff class members to increase the potential that this, that this class does in fact get certified when it gets to that level. So those are the three things I'm looking for. I think that's it. The soccer competition for New York Law School is this Friday. Certainly very excited for that. Congrats to all of our competitors for making it. This far in the review process, we will announce a winner. Dan, uh, I might bother you offline to uh, be a special judge. But yeah, it's symposium season. So if you guys are looking for a conic detrimental Dan and I to appear as panelists anywhere, we got you. That's what we do. Dan, anything to add before we put this episode in the books? No, I think that pretty much is a is a pretty action-packed week of sports law issues. I think we covered five during Super Bowl week. A lot to cover here. This is certainly one of the better, more you know, interesting, varied weeks of sports legal issues. So we covered all the major ones during this episode. So thanks for thanks for hanging on to our every word and joining us week after week on Conduct Detrimental. Okay, Wallach Legal on Twitter and Instagram, myself at Sports Lust, the show Con Detrimental or ConductDetrimental.com, as we remind everyone every week. You can always write for us. We've had a ton of good articles this week. John Nucci has an article coming out, uh, Penn State. John Nucci, a favorite of yours and mine, Dan, on a really interesting sports issue in golf. I'll leave it at that. Maybe we'll cover it uh, next week. Okay, for Dan, myself, the Conduct Detrimental family, we will see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Happy Super Bowl, everybody.